Welcome to the Story Enneagram Podcast. I'm Jim Gum, and I'm an Enneagram teacher and coach living in Kansas City. I have a man crush on one of the late night talk show hosts. I think he's smart, funny, and does a phenomenal job of interviewing his guests. I even got to shake his hand once and tell him that I was his biggest fan. One of my favorite things on his show is when he turns the tables. He serves as the guest on his own show, and one of his old friends interviews him. I always learn a lot about him and about his story. In this trailer, I am the one being interviewed about the Enneagram. I'm the guest, not the host. I first met Justin McRoberts in 1997 at a staff training in Florida. We've remained friends since then. He's a musician, author, and an all-around great guy. I always enjoy being with him. Justin is not a fan of the Enneagram, at least not in the form that he'd been exposed to. We were together at a conference where I taught a few years ago, and now he's a lot more open to it. He asked me some great questions, and I hope you'll enjoy his podcast and getting to know me, your host. From the At Sea Podcast, Episode 97, Justin McRoberts. Oh, the Enneagram. It is, like many tools, so often misused or misapplied. And it feels to me at this point that a lot of folks are stuck between some form of infatuation with the tool itself or with their type and some form of annoyed disdain with the whole thing. I'm not a fan of the Enneagram. Not the way people are fans of the Boston Red Sox or Manchester United. I do like what I see happen in the lives of people who apply the tool wisely and lovingly. Jim Gum is a certified teacher of the narrative Enneagram. There are many approaches to the study and application of the tool, and having worked with Jim in a few different settings, I really appreciate his take. Specifically, Jim introduced me to the idea that knowing myself by way of the Enneagram is ultimately not about knowing my type. It's about transcending my type and knowing myself as whole. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation. I think you'll dig it. Check it out. Uh, did, so you, you've been doing Enneagram work for way longer than you've been in the church. That church? Yeah. yeah did, it, I, did it jump out of, like, did you, like, you dove into Enneagram stuff because you needed it or because you were around people and you were trying to figure people out? Like, how does that start for you where you're like, here's, there's this tool is it yeah. like a personal interest? Was it like I need to figure out how to figure out leadership? How do you get there? Yeah. So the Enneagram came to me, and I feel like it came to me as a gift at a time in my life when I was not looking for the Enneagram, but it was uh, offered to me uh, by Brennan Manning. Okay. I was on a silent retreat. It was December of 1991. I was two years or about a little bit more than a year into my first ministry job as a Young Life Area Director mm -hmm. and had plunged into a state of depression in uh, twice, uh, both in the hmm. fall. And I, on the silent retreat, you 
you didn't speak, but you did have an hour to kind of process stuff with Brennan. And there was one afternoon, it's December 10th, 1991. I have it in my notes. And I said, look, I have got something about me that is compulsive. And I'm aware now that it is not helping me. Hmm. And I hmm. can't to get a handle on it. And um, I was 30 years old, you know, right on schedule. That's when you need to go to counseling, <laughs> age 30. I make your appointment now if you're not there yet. Oh, that's really good. And I hadn't gone to counseling yet, but I, I was in a personal crisis. I had never been depressed in my life. I, hmm. I think that fall, my wife um, asked me a question because I would come home from work and I said, hey, I just need to make a couple calls. And it was before texting and cell phones. You actually had to sit by the phone and call people. And she asked me this one day. She said, hey, when when are you not working? Mm. And wow. when she when and that's a hard question to be asked. What's harder is to not really have an answer for that. And that was true. For <laughs> I I was always the joke was I was always thinking or planning or doing something. And I, and I was realizing I had hit my personal limitation huh. on that. I told that to Brennan. He, he'd been listening to me for a few days and he said, well, you need to learn about the Enneagram. And I wrote it down. I didn't know how to spell it. You know, E N N E A. Oh, wow. Okay. And, uh, he told me about the book Personality Types by Don Richard Riso, which came out in 1987. So the more popular Enneagram books, Helen Palmer's and Don uh, Riso's came out about 87, 88. And even though the Enneagram had been in America for about 17 years, there was a, a long latent period. And it had thrived in... Uh, Catholic communities, and it had thrived with Catholic spiritual directors. And so I got that, in a sense, from Brennan, who was a, a former Catholic priest and was using it in direction. Immediately went out and bought the book. Immediately realized I was a type three, which is an achiever type who um, has a fixation about achievement goals work and the most workaholic-related type. Right. And uh, the consequence of that for type 3 is they um, don't pay attention to their emotional life because hmm. emotions will slow down the workflow, yep. they'll get in the way, Yeah. Um, and that wasn't how I rolled. And then I think... Ultimately, I was absolutely uh, afraid and, and terrified of my emotional life and really didn't want to go there. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that started the journey. Uh, it's been so you, gotta, you had to have someone else point it out to you. Like you, you, it wasn't a matter of like, which is sort of a neogram thing. Yeah, it's like someone yeah. else has to say, I need you to or you need a it has to. It came yeah. from the outside. It wasn't like self-discovery for the sake of it it was relationship yeah it was and and that year i'd also taken the myers-briggs for the first time and that was helpful insightful and really i had the myers-briggs that february and then i learned about the enneagram and what i found for me was the enneagram not only described what i was like but it gave me a pathway to get 
unstuck. Okay. And that was what I thought was the most powerful um, aspect about the Enneagram. And, uh, or the way I like to say, you know, you're in a box and you need to find out what your box is. That's learning your type, but you spend the rest of your life trying to dismantle and discard and Mm -hmm. get outside that box. Hmm. So, yeah, so that's been the journey. And then maybe for 20 or 25 years, I was probably the person who told more people about the Enneagram in that context, I was usually like, have you heard of the Enneagram? No. And then I would, you know, talk to people about it, but I didn't really teach it formally and I hadn't been formally trained. I wanted to get trained and go through schooling in it in the nineties, but, um, I had neither time nor money. I was an area director with four young boys and, you know, I didn't know how I was going to come up with any money to go somewhere and get certified. Right. Uh, and I didn't. So that started late. Um, what does it? So what does it mean? So for for like for someone who, well, for most folks, the idea of like an enneagram certification, like yeah. what the hell is that? Like what? <laughs> like this? Like it's an right? Right? I mean, the, the the engagement with this thing is like, well, you know, you there's a this thing. It's a personality test, quote unquote, yeah. or it's yeah. a it's a personal growth tool, or yeah. it's uh you know, it's a way to know myself or it's a way to understand my, you know, but you can go, you can get a certification as an yeah. Enneagram person. What does that even mean? Why? Well, the school I went to um, was the narrative school, which was out in the San Francisco Bay area that was founded by Helen Palmer and David Daniels. And um, <clears throat> what it meant uh, for me was taking a number of classes, uh, you know, understanding Enneagram theory, understanding the spiritual ramifications behind it, understanding how you would try to determine another person's type. Um, you know, a number of how to teach the Enneagram, all these things. And, and there were like two tracks. There was a teacher track and then there was like a counselor coaching track. And, um, it involved both coursework, uh, five or six classes, and then it involved a mentorship. And I, I was mentored through the narrative tradition by Beatrice Chestnut, who wrote the complete Enneagram. And so she would watch me, she would watch videotapes of me teaching. She would watch videotapes of me doing typing interviews and then give me feedback. And then I kind of eventually had like a an oral exam where I had to do it before the accreditor. And so I got a certificate that I'm certified in the narrative tradition to teach that the Enneagram, I would say there are different levels of programs and um, you know, it's not like a college degree. I, and what I think with any education thing, it's the process that is more important than the product. And I think rounding out my understanding of the Enneagram, especially that, you know, most people, They'll, they'll learn their type uh, or they'll, they'll think they learn their type. They'll learn their spouse's type and maybe their kids and their boss. And then there's a few other types that they don't really understand that well. And so I think formalizing training um, really helps to not – I like one thing we looked at in our class was type bias. You know, like yeah. everybody – 
has types that they prefer than others and they, that they don't like and, and just taking a look at that and what, what types do you tend to have the most trouble with and hmm. what the bias is there. Um, it was a really, that was a helpful concept to realize, Oh, I'm biased against certain types. And, yeah. So that's it. Like in, in so far as you can get a certification and there's training, yeah. Is it possible? I mean, just as a broad conversation, is it possible to get this thing wrong? Like like one of the one of the things I like about y- your approach to or your posture, the way you I guess it's a posture thing. It's not just an approach. Is the answer to 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 the best of my understanding watching you talk about the Enneagram and its use is you can get this wrong. Like you can do this wrong. Like yeah. th- there's a I would say go. Um, I would say a third to a half of the people that I encounter are probably not quite right about their Enneagram type. And I'll say this for a number of reasons. Number one, uh, the main way that people learn about the Enneagram now is vehicles like this, a podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, or secondly, uh, the most common thing I, I'll say to somebody, like, have you heard about the Enneagram? And they go, well, I've taken the test. And it's it's in, in the definitive, the test. And what they're referring to is probably a free online test. And um, it might get you in the ballpark about your type. And you might be fortunate enough that it's right the first time. But I think about five years ago, I began to understand in the narrative tradition, which focuses on the the instinctual subtypes. So instead of nine types, what you really have is 27 types with three subtypes per type. And it's it's more nuanced than what a lot of people use is what's your wing, you know, nine with an eight wing or nine with a one wing. It, it, It explains a lot. And I think what happens is because of this subtype influence, um, there are a lot of lookalike types. Hmm. Um, Type six would be a good example to talk about. So type six is a very common type. Uh, Their core passion or what their fixation is, what could possibly go wrong or hazards or their, their passion is fear, which I believe is a very latent and kind of hidden passion that a six thinks that everybody should be cautious about life and they don't see what they're doing as being pessimistic or fearful. They just see it. They're, they're realists. That's yeah. how they see it. Right. Right. But it, I think the subtypes with the six are so fascinating because, uh, in a sense, what a subtype is, is how does the passion play out behaviorally? It's like the functional part. There's like the static, yeah. I am a whatever, and right. then the question of like, okay, well, what does that look like in action? Yeah. That's a subtype. That's a subtype. So six would be a fantastic example. So six, the three instinctual variants or subtypes are the self-preservation, the need to survive. Uh, it's how we all enter this world. Like I need uh, food, clothing, shelter, safety, skin-to-skin contact, all that stuff. And that becomes dominant for people. The other one, uh, second one is the one-to-one instinct that need to connect or make that mirroring eye contact that a mother and a, and a child does or two lovers do that I know you and you know me. That's the sexual instinct. 
And then the social instinct is, how's my relationship in the group? How's my relationship in the family? How's my relationship on the team at work with my peers? That's the social variant. And so if you take the sixes, for example, which um, are so varied, they almost look like three different types. So if you're a self-preservation six, uh, the fear is going inside you Hmm. and you are coming up with a strategy to feel safe. And the strategy is called warmth. It's by creating an army of friendships and you are warm and friendly to people I have a coworker who's a self-pressed six and if he's in the building and I'm in the building, he always comes by, Hey, just checking in. How you doing? What's, what's going on? And he's friendly. And so that one looks like a two because they have all these friends and they are kind of watching out for him, but they're not a two in terms of always looking to serve one another, to be like, they're a two, they're a six because they want to feel safe. Right. And their strategy for being safe is a multitude of friendships. So our worship director, Self-Pres 6, his name is Mike Crawford. He put an album out like 10 years ago, and it's called Mike Crawford and His Secret Siblings. And he literally has a worship team of like 50 musicians that he stays in super contact with, and he's he's beloved. And it's it's a it's a strategy for security. The social six uh, aligns them. It's called duty. They align themselves with like a right philosophy or right way of being. And if they if they go, if I follow these rules, I'm going to be safe. And so they'll look like a one, like a perfectionist or a um, a person that needs to be right. But they're they're not needing to be right. They're needing to find a code of ethics to feel safe. And then the third type of six, the sexual six is uh, the one that acts scary when scared. Right. And so they look like an eight. Hmm. And so they'll often get mistyped as eights. uh, And eights are about, they're the strongest type on the Enneagram. They're about power and control. This six isn't about power and control. It's about intimidation. I'm, oh, you're scaring me. I'm going to, I'm going to get real big and scare you back. So it's kind of like fight, uh, flight, or, um, freeze yeah in terms of the strategies and they 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 um present very differently so you i mean you really go you know you you don't just go into like hey there are multiple ways to understand your own type there are multiple manifestations of your own type and and there's a journey to your own type because that's part of the trick right it's like the difference between theoretically the enneagram um, and, uh, as a tool and yeah. a lot of other tools, it's not like, Hey, you're typed, you're done. You're yeah. shocking. You're an asshole. Here's how. <laughs> and then it's over. It's more like, yes, you are. You're an asshole. And here's how you get better. Um, and well, we're, we're all, you know, I think what happens typically is people, learn their type and it explains so much of their behavior and then they double down on it. And, uh, for me as a a three, my growth path is actually away from workaholism. It's away from achievement. It's away from, um, not being able to relax. And so that's true for every type. And so a lot of times what happens is people, 
Um, find out their type. Oh, I'm a two. I'm a helper. Well, let me help you. I'll help this. I'll help that. And they, they are not getting into the unconscious motivations to help, which ultimately probably relates to, I just want you to like me, you know, and, uh, that's the truth that we have to face. Every type has to face some truth about themselves that they would rather probably not look at. So that's kind of why I think, um, you know, that I, there's a lot more interest in the Enneagram uh, since uh, the Road Back to You and the yeah. podcasts have come out. I'm grateful for that. But in a sense, it's like uh, gold leaf. It is a very thin layer. Yeah, that's Enneagram. what I'm getting at. It's like for you, like um, there is a usefulness to the, in, to the, the introductory knowledge. But it's not just, and, and tell me if I'm getting this wrong. Like, uh, it's not that's neat. That's fine. Have an introductory knowledge, but this is not the kind of thing you want to stay introductory with. That if you're going to get into this, yeah. if you're going to do this, then you really need to take the next several steps and commit to the longer term with this as a tool. Because if you don't, this is where I'm picking up from you. If you don't you'll damage yourself and other people. This isn't just like a, hey, I know some stuff about myself. That's neat. Let's move on. You can yeah. actually hurt yourself. You can you can move into like really bad patterns emotionally, socially, sexually, if you don't really understand yourself more fully, that the Enneagram is dangerous in a way as well. Is that is that somewhat accurate? Yeah, and I would say one of my teachers, Ronnie Pais, uh, says it this way. He says, really, the goal of the Enneagram is that it's it's about the three centers of our being, our thinking, feeling, and acting. And all of us have those kind of out of balance somehow. You know, too much thinking, not enough thinking. Too much feeling, not enough feeling. Too much doing, not enough doing. You can imagine how that could play out. And the first thing that we need to work on is to become a human being and a human being has ready access to whatever aspect of their self they need, whether it's thinking, feeling, or acting. Hmm. That's part of that is just regaining our lost humanity, uh, returning from the fall. We all have just a distortion of ego that is played out in our types. And then he goes, once you've done that work, once you become a human being, then you can really become a spiritual person. You can really focus on the higher aspects of each type. And the higher aspects of each type are the very opposite of what the personality types uh, show as. So mm-hmm. an eight, uh, that is, you know, they're known as aggressive or bossy or loud. Uh, the holy idea of uh, the eights is holy truth and their 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 uh, virtue is innocence, almost like a childlike innocence and ex- tenderness and accepting, and that is not typically how we talk about eights. We talk about them as um, bossy, brash, and they don't need to double down on that. They, that's the last thing they need, in a sense. They need to get in touch with their own inner vulnerability and tenderness and their own. Uh, get in a sense getting comfortable without being in control Hmm. Uh, you know getting in control is just a strategy and and uh being loud and brash is a strategy to gain control Hmm. Um, but it isn't going to serve them long term so 
it's almost like it's opposite day. You know, here's your personality. Here's how it presents. And uh, we're going to, we're going to try to disrupt that as much as possible so that you can experience fully what it's like to be human. Do you have, um, like for someone who is, let's say, you know, they're, they're neck deep in the thing. Yeah. They feel like they have a grasp on their type. Are there ways for someone like, how does, how does one recognize like, Oh, I think I could be off on the wrong road. Or like, how does someone come to, cause you're saying, which I agree with, you can say like, Hey, you can, you can type yourself wrong. You can be wrong about yeah. yourself, which <laughs> let's just, let's you and I just be honest for a minute. That's just some stuff no one wants to hear, especially now. Like self-knowledge is like the yeah. prized possession uh, in American culture. If you're between the ages of like 17 and 45, knowing <laughs> yourself is like only I get to know that and everyone else gets yeah. to step all the way off and I will tell <laughs> you who I am and I'll, use, yeah. and I'll use this tool to justify my self-knowledge. What you're saying yeah. is like, yeah – you're not that smart actually like, and the tool is smarter than you. How does someone come to that kind of like wise moment where they're like, yeah, I don't think I know myself. Like what is an indication if you've typed yourself wrong? How do you know that? Wow. Um, Oh, I, I like what Richard, uh, roar, said in his Enneagram book that if you don't see the Enneagram as in some way just a little bit humiliating, you probably haven't quite found your type yet. Mm. And uh, I always love the quote by Jung who said, it's a horrible shock to become acquainted with yourself. In other words, if for my type as a three and uh I spent the early part of my life priding myself on the things that I got done. Okay. Hmm. I, I could, I could accomplish big projects and I could do it better than the average person. And so you could get, you could get recognition for that and, yeah. or you get jobs or job offers and, um, or praise. And so that is in one sense that feeds that thing that you've, created, which is the need to achieve. The downside is it creates this monster that, um, you know, what have you done for me lately that you are beginning to serve compulsively. Hmm. And so I think what causes somebody to grow spiritually is when they have the experience of limitation, uh, like maybe they have a loss and they don't have emotional capacity to process grief. They don't go there. That was my own case when my father died uh, 20 years ago. I was sad for about eight weeks, and then I thought, okay, this is not working. I need to kind of get on. You know, I, I, I'm just staring out the window kind of thinking about dad being gone. He died suddenly. Yeah. And so I made up my mind, okay, we need to move on with life. And then I'm in the counselor's chair nine months later and she's going, well, you, you short, you, you shortchanged the feeling part of this. You shortchanged grief. Ooh. And so the reason we show up with the counselor so often is I have anxiety or depression. Anxiety is something's wrong. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Depression is 
I'm trying to push down whatever it is that's bothering me, but it, it's, it's bringing everything down. Yes. Um, and so those are usually the clues. And I, and I do, I kind of joked about, you know, when you're 30, you need to, um, you, you probably will start going to therapy and, and what I, but you're not wrong. I mean, that's funny, but it's also true. <laughs> yeah. And what happens is our personality, you know, the personality type isn't in and of itself bad. It was an adaptive strategy that got us through our childhood, whatever wounds we might have had there. It got us through college and picking a major. It helped us uh, pick a mate and kind of got us into our career. So all that happened and our personality helped uh, pull us along and do that. But eventually we've got to deal with uh, the stuff that's undeveloped in us or that's compulsive or that we haven't looked at. And, and that's typically what happens in the second half of life. Uh, you know, Jung would say it that way. The lessons of the morning will not take us through to the, what we need in the afternoon of our life. And the two halves of life that you, it's really a completely different game, you know, once you uh, get to 30 and then, once you go to counseling, you know, sure enough, who shows up there is mom's sitting on your left and dad's sitting on your right. Yeah. And you got to process what that whole thing was about. Yeah. And uh, you made up a story about it. And uh, that and families will do that. They'll you know, sometimes your mom and dad will give you the story. Yes. About Which what they do. Like. That's the job, right? That's part of the job as a parent <laughs> is you actually provide a narrative. They so that your kids know who they are. And then eventually when you get to be an adult, you go, I don't know about that narrative. That that wasn't really true. I'll tell you a story that's kind of fascinating. Yeah, go. That I've been dealing with. So I'm a, I'm a three. And um, I had a tight bias against sixes. And uh, sixes seemed hesitant and not bold and confident like I would come across and would also slow down plans. And I like to move forward on plans. But the crazy thing about type three, it's connected on the line to type six. And what I know about the Enneagram now is you got to go there first. You got to go against the arrow mm. to six and kind of deal with some of that stuff. And so I went on a retreat uh, at a, Catholic retreat center. I think it was the same place I learned about the Enneagram. And I just kind of sat with, you know, what is that six for me and began to realize a, a large amount of fear that I had never fully acknowledged. I, I took an assessment 20 years ago uh, by Don Wooster. You probably took it. Remember when Don Wooster was doing that assessment? Yep. The, with, the uh, big fat, staff? like big fat questionnaire. Yeah. Yep. I remember this. I took this assessment and uh, he said, wow, your anxiety is really low, like 3%. In fact, your anxiety level is the lowest I've ever seen on one of these tests. And I thought, <laughs> yeah, that's right, man. <laughs> I am, I am calm, cool and collected. And uh, boy, was that really not true. And I began to really lean into this uh, aspect of myself that was very afraid. And then part of um, doing the adaptive strategy where you try to get stuff done, hmm. uh, it's actually a fear of like, I, I got to perform well. And if I don't, they'll see through me. Right. It, it was fear motivated. And then... 
it got even deeper. So I, I grew up with a story in my life that uh, Jimmy was accident prone. Hmm. Jimmy is accident prone. And Jimmy was accident prone because um, I had stitches seven times, I think, before I was in the fourth grade. Okay. Uh, you know, various accidents around the house or out with friends and, uh, was always going to the ER to get stitched up. And so I grew up with a narrative. My dad would say, oh, Jimmy's accident prone. And, and then probably about four or five years ago, I'm, I'm almost 60 now. I, I started going, wow, that was an interesting story. And I thought I have four boys. We didn't come close to going to the emergency room seven times. I'm not like uncoordinated. And then I began to realize the story about what was really true in my life that really made me anxious is that I was raised by uh, a mentally ill mother Ooh. who was not able to really function that well when I was young. And especially as I got older, I, I became her guardian mm, 20 years ago, but have had to be responsible uh, for helping her function in life for about 30 years, 32 years since, since she was about 55. Mm -hmm. And so then I suddenly thought, hold it. I wasn't accident prone. My, my mom, like, where was she when I got run over by the bike, when my brother's friend ran me over, where was she when, you know, I stepped on the needle in the floor and where was she, you know, she wasn't, attentive. And I grew up, um, in a sense, getting, uh, getting injured because I wasn't watched. And I think ultimately I, I realized, man, my childhood was a scary place. Hmm. And I had to make it on my own. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And then that insight led me to understand I am not a classic three. I'm a what's called a counter type three. And my, my instinctual subtype is self-preservation. Well, I know where the self-preservation dominance comes from. I kind of had to watch out for myself and raise myself. And this, this subtype, the self-preservation three is called security. Huh. And so how did that manifest in my life? I never really realized it, but I would just say things like, well, you know, if you do a good job, you will always, you will always be employed. Or I would say to my wife, kind of a vow, you know, I have never been unemployed a single day of our married life. You know, that type of thing is kind of an achievement thing, but yeah. it really is fear-based yes. and security-based. Yep. And like, hey, I've never had a lapse in our benefits ever, you know? Um, and I realized, oh my gosh. And then part of being a counter type is it's counter vanity or, uh, and when I was first married back in the eighties, somebody got me an IZOD sweater and that was in the preppy era and <laughs> alligator I, on it. It had an alligator on That's it. That's so good. I, it, I had I one cut too. It off. I cut it off and you I didn't cause I like, I like the sweater and, um, one day I was sitting at lunch with somebody and go, D did you cut that off? And I was just so like, like outed and embarrassed, but I didn't want to be showy, which is what the counter type three looks like. Um, which is why I think the counter, the subtypes are so important. The idea of nine different counter types that are really hard to, 
to uh, assess with a free test. So. So one of the things you get to, uh, and I'd like to, I'd love to hear you break down the the journey in general. Yeah, but there's a transcendence that you look for that as a, as an enneagram coach, you it's part of what like again in order to avoid the the pitfalls and the dangers yeah. of of the enneagram as it's improperly used, and to actually maximize the the, the actual gift of the tool. The gift of the tool is not so that you would know, hey, you're a four, you need to be special. Hey, let's yeah. figure out ways for you to be special that are useful. Done. Yeah. That's not really the gift. That's like that's part of the journey, but the transcendence that to learn who I am so that I, in the, in a neogram terms, to learn my type yeah. is part of learning who I am. I'll actually rephrase it like this. To learn my type on the neogram is to understand an element of, like a doorway into who I am in wholeness but in order to understand understand who i am in wholeness that has to do with transcending my type which i don't think i'd heard an enneagram coach talk about before yeah like yeah so can you do two things for me can you talk about the journey where you like there's there's the discovery part and then there's this sort of like you're in love with your type thing and then you're disillusioned and then like talk about the enneagram journey and the importance of actually transcending your type yeah I don't think this is talked about very much, especially now that the Enneagram has become popular. But I I see like three aspects of how people go along the journey in personality and then three aspects of of when they begin to uh, transcend the type. So the first part I would say is just oblivious that you even have a type. And so uh, some people are resistant to being typed. I get that. And I don't uh, tell anybody their type or especially unsolicited, you know, offer. And that would be uh, the biggest sign of a, of a novice Enneagram person who goes around the room and types everybody. Uh, it's, it's annoying and they're probably wrong. They're, they're, mm. they're, they're probably wrong. Like, one of my coworkers, who a beautiful guy named Bill, and we spent two years just talking about the Enneagram, and and he uh, was just a fantastic employee and very helpful. And I guess he'd heard about the Enneagram about five years before I knew him. And he was there was a band playing at the church, and he helped load up the the gear, and. Uh, <clears throat> One of the guys said, oh, you know about the Enneagram? You're probably a two because you're helping me do this. And so it, 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 it's like the question that, um, like, oh, only twos can help. All other eight types can't help at all. You know, that's not true. Anybody can help. But it just, he what didn't know about typing. Uh, you know, if you've never heard about the Enneagram, you're kind of oblivious that you even have a pattern or a pattern way of being. Um. So that is the first thing that I see is that people kind of don't even realize they have uh, habits of type Hmm. and uh, where they I'll say this situation happens and you always react a certain way or this this type of situation gets you the most upset. I think that's a pretty critical way to look at it. Um, So that's the first thing that I see is kind of oblivious. Then you. um you understand your type uh, and you begin to uh, understand kind of the patterns of it. 
and then also it, it kind of often moves into caricaturization. So, you know, eights are bossies, sevens are like Tigger, you know, and uh, fours are like sad and moody and always playing sad music and, you know, ones are anal or whatever. And it be- becomes kind of this caricaturization uh, thing. And typically those things are maybe describing one subtype. And I, I find that um, I really dislike uh, a lot of memes because they they tend to be uh, hard on one type. Yeah. And, the, and the, it's, it's like a, it's, it's, it's not even just characterization. It's like, it's minimization. It's like, yeah. you yeah. are this. And because you're this, I can name you and put you in a place yeah, and sort of own you from a distance. Like, oh, you're just this way because this. Like now, it's not a tool that's helping someone grow in themselves. It's a tool that puts them in a position to be overpowered by someone's yeah basic jerkness. Yeah, it, it's kind of any of the typologies can do that. The enneagram, I think, is especially prone to that. You know, that the early days, uh, some of the earliest practitioners said you like the teacher would maybe let you know your type, but you weren't supposed to talk about it with anybody. It was like a secret knowledge. And, you know, there's this aspect when somebody uh, asks you your middle name, hmm. like Justin, like, what's your middle name, Justin? And, you know, it, and the it's question Ryan. it's just we'll just do the whole thing. It's Ryan. Last it's, My middle name is Ryan. Yeah, but there's a certain sense that when you tell somebody your middle name, you give them some power. Hmm. And it actually goes back to middle age times when people would do numerology. And uh, you you figured out a number, a, a name had a, uh, every name had a number associated with it. And you kind of do some black magic on somebody if you knew their number. So when somebody would say, I've got your number, it meant they knew your middle name that was kind of supposed to be secret. And uh, yeah, a sociology (laughs) teacher that I used to teach with told me that. I'm suddenly suddenly really uncomfortable about a lot of conversations I've had over the course of my life. (laughs) Wait, wait, what? It's, um, I, you find it to be true that even when you're still today, we're not in the middle ages, but you know, when somebody asks your middle name, it's like, do I trust you with it? Hmm. Um, like, are you going to take care of it? Are you going to make fun of it? Mm-hmm. And, uh, my middle name is William, but I'd always tell people it was Walter just cause that was funnier to say, but okay. <laughs> I don't um, know why that's better, but yes, go for it. <laughs> so anyway, that's the first part of, you know, I would say the journey of the Enneagram Typing too many people, over caricaturizing too many people, minimizing people with the tool. And then the growth happens, I believe, when you you get to limitation of type. And that's actually what I was saying at the beginning of the podcast is how I learned about it. Hey, I've got this compulsion. It is not helping me. This drive to work all the time Hmm. is not making me healthy. And it's the limitation of that type. A, a two will find it when they overhelp and burn themselves out. An eight will find that if they take too much control and they alienate those who are with them. A five will do that when they go too internal and too overthinking and they get paralyzed or they get too isolated. You know, all those things, all of our types in personality will lead us into um, really ultimately limitation. Hmm. 
And so the next aspect that I think is really important is the idea of we have to do shadow work. And shadow, shadow work. work. Yeah, shadow work. Meaning what? So it's, it's another Jungian idea, the idea that um, there are aspects of me which I'm not aware of, my blind spots, and I either am not aware of them or I'm slightly aware of them, but I really don't want to look at them. And part of, I think, that good uh, work in terms of bringing everything in is to embrace the both the darkness and lightness of your type. Hmm. And I read a book this, this fall called Making Friends with Your Shadow, it's not a print, but it's a good book. But it basically said, sometimes the harder we try to really live a life of goodness, the shadow grows, you know, alongside that with the same amount of strength. Hmm. And, and I think so, so often, especially in uh, faith environments, we um, will see a, a fall of a, a Christian leader and just be like, where did that come from? You know, and yeah. the truth was it probably came from his unattended shadow that had begun to have a lot of strength in his life or her life. Yeah. And uh, we see it all the time, you know, especially see it in Christian circles. Um, yes. You know, like, wow, where did that come from? And it's like that came from your shadow that you hadn't addressed. Hmm. And like what you are actually capable of or what is kind of going on inside. And I think part of that growth is kind of going, wow, the Enneagram lets me know that all nine types are fantastic. They have these fantastic things and they all have shadow aspects and nobody gets off. You know, there's no type that doesn't have a shadow. And so doing that shadowy work is really a deep growth thing. Yes. Um, you know, and so and a lot of that shadow stuff is directly related to the passion, you know. So for a four uh, uh, that you identify with, the last time I spoke to you, envy yep. can be a really shadowy thing. And then envy can sometimes, you know, morph into schadenfreude where you you wish bad things for people, yes. you know, Resentment. out of yep. – <laughs> Not that you've ever had that thought. Just like seven to ten times a day. <laughs> Short well, list can, of people. So, I mean, yeah. I've narrowed down the people that I want bad things to happen, which is, I feel like is progress. <laughs> I used to want it for a lot of folks. Now it's like I want really bad things for only a few people. <laughs> yeah, and that's grown. I've grown. I've grown. I feel better about me and the way I hate. Yeah. And then the, I would say that's like a, a, a stage is embracing your shadow. Then the final one is like, your type in personality is really something that uh, does not define you anymore. And so much so that sometimes people can't tell what type you are. Hmm. Like the, the eight is innocent and the one is serene. They're not angry or anal. They're, they're peaceful. They can laugh at stuff. And the seven is sober. All these virtues are almost the very opposite of the passion. Yeah. And uh, the twos aren't proud about all they've done. They just are humble. Like, I, I can help you if you need help, but I don't need to help you so I feel good about myself. That right. It's a completely right, right. transcendent. Oops, hold on. That's not supposed to be on. Good. I hate when that happens. Yeah. That's all right. That, that, that aspect of um, 
really the end game of the Enneagram is, is that you say goodbye to the personality and you have a, you have a strength and a superpower, Yes, but you, you, you only use it when it's needed to be used. Not all the time. Hmm. And, you know, for me, I can look in a situation and I can get a project done probably more efficiently and quicker than most people, but I don't need to, to be liked or I don't need to, to feel important or significant, but if it's needed, you know, I can go, Hey, I'll take, I'll take that on. I'm fine with it. Yeah. And then I don't need it to feel significant that I'm a worthwhile person that has nothing to do with that. That's good. Yeah. Is yeah. there, I mean, there's something to be said here too for the like um, affinity, right? If I, I mean, you started by saying like, well, sorry about saying, but like one of the ways we identify like an actual journey in the Enneagram or with the Enneagram and that Rohr gets to Richard Rohr in his book um, about the Enneagram is like, if it's not humiliating to a degree, you're probably not doing the work. Yeah. But one of the fruits of the work is like, I like myself. Like is coming to yeah. an actual, like not, not like a false, like, ah, I like that I'm cocky, but like, no, I don't like that I'm cocky. And I like myself well enough to not want to be cocky anymore. Yeah. Or I like that. I, I mean, as an, as a, you know, as, as someone who's in, who's generally identified as a four, yeah. I like that I can get into the middle of a room and I can get control of that room with gifts, talents, the whole thing. I love that about myself. Sure. And I had to move through a part of, of my own journey in which like, I actually don't like about myself that I want to just, I just want the attention because it makes me feel good. Yeah. And to a place where it's like, Hey, I can, I can do some really, really good work. Right. In other people with the attention they give me. Yes. And it's like, and so I like, I used to like myself. This is what I said. This is what I said now. It's like, I used to really like myself. And in order to like myself, I had to ignore all, I had to ignore all kinds of shit that I did not like about myself in order yeah. to like myself. And now yeah. I've done the work and I love who I am and I don't have to ignore anything. Like yeah. I'm okay with all of it. There's a self-love yeah. part of it that's a that's part of the journey. There's also like an other love part of it that like I love that you get to and I'd love to wrap it up with this is like there's something to be said for the again like the difference between the enneagram as a tool and so many other tools is your type is a type only insofar as it has a relationship to other types. It's like yeah. there is no one if there aren't twos and threes and fours and fives. There's no four outside in, if there's no relationship. That as a tool, it sort of bears witness to like you are who you are because you have a relationship with yeah. people who are not you. Right. And if I don't come to a love of other persons, I've not done the work that the Enneagram is asking me to do. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that there, there's one aspect about the Enneagram is um, learning who you are, like who God made you to be. What are these gifts, these insights, the holy ideas, the virtue that you can really, in a sense, I think mirror what God intended for you to be. I, I think it gives you the pathway to that. Secondly, it gives you this huge amount of compassion, like the burdens that all the other eight types that are not you are carrying. Hmm. Like, what is it like to always have to feel to be in control? What is it like to right. feel like you can never make a mistake? Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, would that be awful. that you beat yourself up? It'd be awful. Yeah. And I don't despise the person who feels that way. No. Man, I want better for you. I, yeah. And I, I want, I want to relieve that burden from you. I mean, I, 
I, one of my favorite things that uh, one of my teachers says, and I often say this to uh, ones, and especially I'm at a church that's, yeah, you know, I say the average congregant is about 40, has three kids or so, and they're, you know, they've got kids at home, they're struggling, and there's a, a, a very dutiful one mother who is trying her best to be a good mom and she's a Christian and, you know, and all that stuff. And her child is, is uh, an eight or, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she thinks, you know, they always usually come up and go, how early can you tell what somebody's type is? Cause they, they think they, they might have an eight. And I said, well, don't type them yet, but you yeah. can come up with your theories. But basically this mom is under this heavy, heavy load of like I should be doing better as a mom. I should be yes. better. I should, I should be able to control his behavior. When he behaves poorly, it, it reflects on me. And one of my teachers said it this way about ones. He said, "All the other types need to work on getting better, but the one needs to work on getting worse." That's really good. And I'll tell you what: you say that to somebody, and especially when they're stressed out, maybe about being a parent, they will they will tear up. Yeah, man. Because they know they've been holding that in so much. And I I tell them, I go, hey, listen, you won the integrity award of, among all your friends and your family. Mm. And I tell you what, you can you can just present pretend like you have a trophy and put it up on the shelf, and no one will ever think that you don't have the most integrity of yes. anybody. Yep, and you can just go have fun and live your life, and like yeah. don't dishes and go play. And Trust yourself. Yes. 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 Yeah, and again, like you know, this is this is why I want to end here is because it's the thing that I have really valued about your posture towards people in their use of the enneagram is like if you're this the the with the what's the phrase like you know knowledge is power that whole thing. It's really not like, like it it can be like, if that's what you want it to be, like knowing someone can grant you a power over them, but even power is a thing. And the, the, the has to relation knowledge should lead to love. Like if you know your world better, that should mean you love your world better. So if you know yourself better, that should mean you love yourself deeper. If you know the world around, you know, the people around you, you should love them better. And if I'm not coming to a place in my life where I like who I am more, I love who I am more, and I'm more capable of, like specifically, like you just said, I know I know how you're emotionally postured and I can help you get better. If I'm not in a place where I'm loving my world better, then I'm completely missing this journey. And your um, relatively aggressive attack on the way the Enneagram has been used to honestly over-characterize people yeah. Uh, or or caricaturize people to yeah. uh, to minimize folks so that we can actually entertain disdain more comically. That's the thing that the Enneagram has done for like more so than I've seen it set people free. We've we've been able to entertain our disdain for one another and for ourselves 
more accurately with greater comedy and and with greater precision. I know how to minimize you better now. Mm. And so that's what I'm going to do. I know how to make fun of myself and shame myself for my weaknesses better now. And that's the place that right now, and maybe it's just a cultural moment, but it drives me up the damn wall. That's not the job guys. We're not trying to figure out ways to make this funnier that we're all so jacked. That's not the journey. The journey is love. Yeah, if we're my, not getting there, then we're doing it wrong. It, it really is true. My kids will – they'll be around peers that talk about the Enneagram. They go, I, I can't even engage with it because it, it's abusive or it's just kind of wrongheaded. And, you know, I'm I'm in it for the long game. And I, I talked to a friend who said, yeah, this little craze of the Enneagram, it'll probably have a little blip. And then we'll move on to what's ever beyond TikTok. I don't know what it is, but we'll move on to some new thing. And we, the Enneagram will still be this powerful tool. We, you know, I'm just going to keep uh, beating the drum about what the Enneagram is about. And uh, I'm still confident that it, it's, a, it's a, a tool that really does help you understand yourself in a deeper way and, and gives you a lot more compassion for all those other types and this world needs that right now that's good well man thanks a ton for your time and thank you for joining me for this episode of the at sea podcast if you'd like to follow up with or dig deeper into jim gum's work you can go to storyenneagram.com that's where he's selling his courses and there's some free resource there as well as kind of a deeper breakdown on what he thinks the enneagram is and what it is not It's just story Enneagram, all one word. Enneagram has two N's in it at the beginning there. And if you'd like to be part of the team of folks who continue to make this podcast happen, we would love to have you on the team. You go to patreon.com backslash Justin McRoberts and join us. Until next time.